Roxo Media House. A Signal 51 is police code for an investigation, a law enforcement proceeding that is a systemic and thorough attempt to learn the facts about a possible crime that is complex and whose facts and circumstances are generally hidden, at least initially, behind obstacles that can be coincidental and or man-made. Investigations methods are formal. I'm John Henry, a journalist, and my partner is Jake White, a retired Fort Worth police sergeant. Together, we examine the difficult cases of law enforcement, both in Fort Worth and around the region. This is Signal 51. The show is designed specifically for a more mature audience. Some of the content is graphic and is not intended for younger audiences. Murder at the Public Schools Gymnasium, Part 2. So the day prior... Clark showed up for jury selection, wearing his U.S. Army uniform, decorated with combat medals. The state quickly objected on the grounds it was a ploy to elicit sympathy. The defense argued it was not for sympathy, it was to avoid the misconception that Clark was a deserter. A deserter is how police described him. However, Baldwin contended Clark was not a deserter because he was at Fort Sill when the warrant was issued. Finally, you may remember, Clark was arrested in February 1970. Here it is, September 1970, and Clark was still in jail. So on the same day, Judge Gray set a $3,000 bond. One would think that the logical step would be to post bond, but he did not. Clark's attorney feared that if he posted bond, he would be apprehended by U.S. Army officials. So in jail, Clark remained. Eight days later, September 16th, 1970, a surprise was in store. The surprise, the murder case, and the rape charges against Clark were dismissed. The rape charges, something we knew nothing about until they were dismissed, stemmed from a case in 1966. And in this case, and in the reports that we found, it stated Clark was indicted, but because of a lack of evidence, a warrant was never written. The case lay dormant until the death of Leatherman. Ultimately, the state told the court they did not have sufficient evidence to prosecute Clark because the witnesses changed their stories. However, Clark was still not a free man. He remained in custody. The charge? Desertion. So Clark, a relatively free man in terms of criminal charges in the state of Texas, now had no worries in regards to his possible role in the death of Barry Leatherman. However, There were three other men tied to this case that could not be so sure. Clarence Earl Russell, Warren Kaczynski, and Gary Bertram Jones. The grand jury returned false swearing indictments against these three after they changed their stories. Ultimately, the shift was significant enough to where the DA's office did not believe they could successfully prosecute the case. Now, Jake, uh, I have the high honor and privilege of introducing a special guest i think this might be our first special guest i mean a special special guest yeah special he is sean Furkey, a real estate attorney who works for the baker firm fidelity national title a title company in fort worth with seven offices across dallas and fort worth did i get that right sean you got it sean also has experience in criminal law on both sides working for noted Tarrant County Defense Attorney Jeff Kearney, and after that as a prosecutor 
for the Travis County District Attorney's Office. Sean also worked in the State Attorney General's Office. Now, last time uh, we saw Sean, Jake, uh, he was nursing a beaten-up, ratty-looking foot. It was bad. It was, re- it was, not, it was not pretty. But, uh, Sean, we're glad to see that you appear to be well in the mend. And for our audience, uh, Sean will be joining us periodically or perhaps more often to help us analyze legal matters that arise in cases, these legal matters that, of course, we don't have an expertise about. Uh, So, Sean, welcome to the Signal 51 Chronicles team. Thank you all so much. Glad to be here. All right, Sean. So, first up, one of the things that came up, this rape charge on Clark, So he's indicted in 1966. The case is lays dormant as described. He's indicted, but there's no warrant. Have you experienced that? Have you seen that? Typically, no. I mean, um, obviously, he he was not in custody at the time. Um, Was he? No. Okay. So when a grand jury, you know, in this case, returned the indictment, which means they found probable cause to believe that a crime, in this case, rape, had been committed. Um, They true bill it. The indictment, the formal charging instrument in a felony case, is is filed. At that point, a warrant typically would have been um, issued for for his arrest. So I I find that rather strange that, you know, an indictment was returned, but no warrant was issued. Yeah, that that was uh, kind of a hard one for me to, to process as I read through this case. So when we look at this case, when we look at the death of Leatherman, we look at ultimately we're at a position to where the, all the charges are dropped. There were two suspects in custody. One confesses, recants his confession. The other one witnesses provide witness testimony that would suggest they saw something. They saw something that led to probable cause in the minds of the investigators who then presumably presented the warrant to a judge. The warrant signed. William Sylvester Clark's arrested. He's charged with murder. However, this one, so what What was different in this one? And maybe it's still a practice today. I don't know. We have the lawyer here to ask the law questions. Let's get him. Let's get to this. So is it likely... Or how often does it happen or does it happen that the defense has the ability to actually interview one of the state's witnesses? Right. So in, in my experience, um, I was a little surprised when, when, I, when I learned that, um, you know, in, in this case, you know, obviously this was 1970. So this is going back, you know, 50 plus years. Um but in my experience, both as a prosecutor and in, you know, working for a criminal defense firm, we did not, you know, when I worked for the criminal defense firm, we, we never were given the option to go and interview the state's witnesses. I mean, we would typically know who they are or who they were, who the state intended to call at trial. But, you know, we didn't really go and interview them independently prior to the trial. You certainly would have an opportunity to cross-examine them on the stand during the trial. Uh, So I found that to be odd. Obviously, you know, it's like anything, things change over the years. Um, I don't know in in this case, because of the issues that they were having with people, you know, recanting their confessions and 
eyewitnesses changing their stories if if the judge you know felt that it was necessary to allow you know the defense mr baldwin and his team of investigators to speak with the state witnesses um i understand that you know they didn't know what they had you know had mentioned in their interviews with police but i did find that to be a bit peculiar because i like i said have not encountered that in my practice the state gives the defense all evidence correct everything that they got there is no ace of spades that they hold on to and in fact i think there was a case in or around austin uh michael morton right that where that was that was the pinnacle issue where i believe the state or perhaps the investigators held some evidence correct created an issue obviously in this case the access to those witnesses i think now would be more of you had access to their statements and the difference between 2022 and the early 1970s is the confessions or the witness statements were probably written unlike now they're going to be audio video recorded so there's a, it, the process is different. One of the other things that got brought up. So we had the issue of the defense allegedly or the defendant allegedly influencing the witnesses to, to the point where they changed their statement and probably say, no, that's not at all what I saw or I didn't see anything. Who knows what they said? It was enough to impact or influence the case as a whole. What was brought up here we are 52 years later. And in this case, this case was one of the few cases uh, called into question would be the present day Citizens Review Board or uh, the Office of Police Monitor. Yeah, something that we just got in nineteen or in two thousand and twenty, fifty years after this. Yeah, it sounds exactly the same, like the exact same thing. I think it is. Yeah. I, I mean, by based on the the stories that we got, and obviously the 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 police union they fought the idea and ultimately one if you will in 1970 it didn't happen it didn't happen for it took another 50 years and they're i mean they're still here they're still fighting over what what this thing will look like they still don't know what this thing will look like yeah i think there's some dispute uh some back and forth on on what they should have access to and what they shouldn't and i think in a large part a lot of that comes down to what is the texas local government code state what you know what any kind of contract that the union may have with the city, et cetera. You know, one thing I would, I, I think would be interesting to talk about though, is, um, is to get Sean's thoughts on, um, you know, in the, in our current day, we're seeing all these false or, uh, bad convictions, you know, right. wrongful, convictions. wrongful convictions. Yeah. There you go. Um, and how this could or could might not have been that way, but the judge and the, and the prosecutor herself decided to dismiss the case rather than possibly convicted. I wonder if this, I mean, I wonder if them dismissing the charge was, was almost ground, like, um, um, like groundbreaking, if you will, in the sense that it probably didn't happen much in 1970 where they dismissed the charges. I mean, it's, they're going full steam ahead. I mean, especially against an African American. Right. Right. I mean, I, I don't think we can, uh, ignore the you know the racial component in this case and i agree with with both you know both of y'all and what you're saying i think that uh you know unfortunately we're hearing more and more about defendants that were wrongfully convicted you know years and years ago before you know dna evidence and and other technological 
improvements. Um, you know, you, you hear about it all the time. You see it on the national news. And, uh, yeah, it really, you know, I think says a lot that in 1970, you know, the judge and the DA felt, uh, you know, that they didn't have enough evidence to take this case to trial and to prove all elements of the offense beyond a reasonable doubt. And they flat out dismissed it, especially against the African-American defendant. And I think, I think, I can't remember, I was reading on this, a, a, a newspaper archive story on this case. And I can't remember if it was Ivory or dealing with Ivory or Clark that the prosecutor said that this office is not into putting innocent people behind bars or without Correct. sufficient evidence. Yeah. Which I thought was a credit, particularly as you say, in that day and age and who the defendants were in their in their race. Um I thought that was rather enlightening at the time, particularly now as we see a lot a number of a high number, it seems like a high number of of uh wrongful convictions over the years. Yeah, I would agree. And I think with this case and kind of getting back to it, just looking at the the offense and the the charges that they were accused of, what happened next with both Ivory and Clark, maybe the police were on the right trail. Well, I I I tend to believe that they certainly were on the right trail. Um I think it was just a matter of giving people a fair trial um i think as we we will see that i think they were pretty they were on it yeah, i beginning. think you're right as is the case with so many crimes as time passes it becomes a distant memory witnesses move on witnesses forget and frankly people go on with their life in this case the murder of barry leatherman is still open who killed him is a question many want to know but as you say, Jake, perhaps law enforcement had the killers in their grasp initially. In November 1983, 13 years after the murder of Barry Leatherman, a woman who was walking her dog stumbled on the body of Bill J. Phillips in a ball field in the Como neighborhood, the same neighborhood, of course, where Clark was arrested 13 years before. It was November 4, 1983, William Sylvester Clark, Milton Punch, Bill Phillips and a person known only as Bedford were riding in Punch's car in Como. At some point during the ride, Phillips fell victim to a robbery by Clark, according to witnesses who said, quote, Clark demanded money from Phillips and fired shots at him, hitting Punch in the hand and causing Punch to make a rapid exit from the car. Bedford also rapidly exited from the vehicle. Subsequently, Clark handed Punch some money and told him to count it. Clark directed Punch to remove the deceased body from the car and undress him. Punch and Bedford removed the body from the car and left it on the ground. They removed the deceased clothing and boots and placed them on the trunk of the car. The body was left in a ravine. They later returned to get the deceased credit union identification. Clark, Punch, and Bedford then went to Clark's house where they spent the night. The next morning, the deceased clothing was placed in a dumpster located in another part of town. Punch testified Clark told him that he would kill him if he ever told on him. Punch further testified that he did not know of Clark's plan to rob Phillips and that he did not know Clark had a gun until shots were fired and that he agreed to help dispose of the body and clothes only because he feared Clark would kill him if he did not. 
taken from Phillips was his wallet, boots, and $250. Charged, convicted, and sentenced to life in prison for the killing of Phillips was William Sylvester Clark. A source familiar with this investigation described Clark as having a reputation for being, quote, a badass thug. With what we have learned about Clark to date, I think this is possibly the most concise description of him. In May 1986, 4th PD officers were dispatched to a domestic disturbance at 2625 Prospect. When they arrived, they found Tommy J. McDonald with a stab wound to the chest. McDonald was transported to John Peter Smith Hospital where he was pronounced dead. Charged in McDonald's death was his brother-in-law, his name Louis Ivory. As of October 1986, Ivory was in custody awaiting trial. That verdict in that case is unknown. However, a Lewis Ivory Jr., born in 1951 from the Ford area, is listed as a registered sex offender. The case disposition date was 2003. The victim, a 13-year-old girl. Sean and I took a field trip. A field trip to southeast Fort Worth. Sean's first, uh, first a, assignment. His first six, assignment. Six, right. Chronicles. Bravely handled that assignment. <laughs> we went to the door. We knocked. We rang the doorbell. We left a note asking or hoping to speak to Lewis Ivory Jr. No one answered. We got a call. The female who called, who got our note, said that she was the niece of Lewis Ivory Jr. She would pass the message for him to contact us. And as of to date, he's never called. He's never provided us with his side of the story. Uh, in regards to Leatherman and in regards to McDonald. The other names that we mentioned, Clarence Earl Russell was reportedly one of the witnesses. A Clarence Earl Russell with an address in the Como neighborhood was charged in 1982 with delivering capsules containing cocaine to undercover officers on multiple occasions. In 2009, it appears that the same Clarence Earl Russell passed away. Warren Kaczynski seems to moved on to a productive life. Hopefully this was just a blip on the radar of his path in life. He never responded. And what happened to Gary Bertram Jones, we could not find out. That concludes the complicated case involving the murder of Barry Leatherman, whose final resting place is in a plot of ground at Blue Bonnet Memorial Hill Cemetery in Colleyville. Officially, his case remains unsolved, but police likely had the culprit in their grasp. Circumstances and changing stories clouded the truth of what happened on January 14, 1970, to the point of making the job of prosecution impossible. Sean, great to have you on the show. Appreciate it, guys. Thank you much for your invaluable input. And Jake, fist bump. Fist bump. Until next time, thank you for listening. Roxo Media House.